This is Dialogue, a podcast of the Lenten preaching series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. My guest tonight is Padraig Otuma. Padraig is a poet and theologian whose work centers around themes of language and power and conflict and religion. Padraig has written books of poems and prayers and prose. From 2014 to 2019, he was the leader of Corrymeela, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community. He's theologian in residence for the On Being Project and creator of the Poetry Unbound podcast presented with On Being Studios. Currently, Padraig's in a writing residency on conflict, climate, and poetry with the Morton Deutsch Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution at Teachers College, Columbia University in New York. That's a little bit of the official stuff. I happen to have a quick connection in which I get to drop a couple of names, but make fun connections with Waffle Shop with Padraig. Before the pandemic took things down, because I get to be at Calvary, one might come to Lenten preaching and sit down next to Barbara Brown Taylor, if you know that name. She's a preacher's preacher, right? And she knows Mimsy Jones. Some of you might know Mimsy. So Mimsy and we go down and we have Waffle Shop and I get to sit by this hero, Barbara Brown Taylor, and start talking to her and say, I think I'm going to go to a, something in Santa Fe with this guy, Padre Gotuma, and she just melts and tells me, you have to meet Padre, and she sends me a book all about just glowing, glowing about this person who's so inspiring to her. And I get up from lunch and walk across to the hotel where I pick up our next preacher, who's a poet named Marie Howe, another one of my heroes. So I'm starstruck for the whole day. I get over to the hotel, and who's Marie texting but this Padre Gotuma? <laughs> and she describes meeting him, this person who comes in, I think she said bounding, just bounding into this <laughs> dinner with energy, bristling with energy, quoting one of her poems. So these connections are fun and enjoyable, but when some people you admire are admiring someone else, this is how we get drawn into circles of new adventures, I guess. And so that was the beginning of my being enamored of, of, of Padraig a little bit. And in the years to come, we've become, become friends as well. So yeah. what a gift to be with you, Thank you here tonight. Thank you. to be here. Our topic um, that we talked about is, is going to be poetry and prayer in the intersection of those two, those two mysteries. I think. And what I've asked Padre to do to kick things off, I was going to talk, ask you to tell us where you started to learn to pray, but there's this beautiful story you tell at the beginning of a piece in Image Journal. And I thought we'd start with that if you'd read it, and then maybe we'll, we'll move on from there. For sure. This is from uh, an essay called Sam's House. Years ago, my friend Paul was employed as a youth worker. Truth be told, he didn't fit the mold of a youth worker. If a 10-year-old asked him how he was, he was liable to say, oh, not so great, I'm sad about my divorce. <laughs> the other youth workers were aghast at his truthfulness. And once at a gathering of young people, Paul was asked to talk about friendship. There were 30 children there, as calm as a nest of mice, all energy and kicking heels against plastic chairs. Paul started to talk about friendships, and then he said he was lonely, even though he had lots of friends. He said he missed his wife. He cried. The children listened. He did that thing where you tried to stop sobbing by gulping down air. and Everything was quiet. It was awkward and truthful and both inappropriate and appropriate. The boss swooped in, started a game, a song, and got all those quiet small bodies up and racing. I was there too, a trainee youth worker. I think I was a bit in love with Paul. 
There was an ache in my chest as I looked at him, standing in the corner now, busying himself with tidying up. And then the next day, Paul told me that the least controllable of all the children, the child we complained about after every event, came up to him in the very tidy corner, held his hand and said, I cry when I'm sad too. moving it's gorgeous and there's so much tucked into this little vignette i mean there's transparency and care and truthfulness and evasion and friendship and innocence and loneliness and control and um i just wonder if the little story could be a window maybe into the story of your own relationship with poetry and prayer even though there was an explicit prayer there yeah um, well i think if you believe in prayer then everything becomes it and i think that is almost too hard to bear at times that everything can become a prayer. One time I was in a supermarket and I saw somebody counting um, coins. Um, she had a, a reduced price birthday cake in her basket. And I saw her counting coins, counting coins, and then put the cake back on the shelf. And that's a prayer of desperation. And afterwards I thought, I wish I'd gone up to her with five pounds and said, did you drop this? Somebody's dropped it. Like, I just saw it on the floor. I wish I'd done that. I didn't. I went home and wrote a poem about it. God almighty. <laughs> <laughs> These days, I wouldn't write the poem. These days, I'd think, how can I find a way to do something that wouldn't shame a person, but would also just find a way to say, hey, well, it's not mine. You might as well take it. So all of those things are prayers. Mm. Uh, prayer is a cry of the heart, I think for some kind of connection. And, and therefore, for me, the question about prayer is a formal one. I'm interested in the rosary. I'm interested in the Angelus. I'm a good, I'm a bad, good Catholic <laughs> or a good, bad Catholic. That's a better way to say it. I'm a good, bad Catholic. Um, but I do like the forms. I like the rosary. I like the Stations of the Cross. I like the Angelus. I like the bells at 12 and 6. Um, I like these calls to attention and calls to think, maybe this is what matters. Maybe. Who is in front of me is, is, what's most, is who's most important. And that if prayer is going to mean anything, it has to mean everything. And therefore, everything has to be wrapped up in it. Mm. And the world is a call to prayer then and experience. And for me, the question is to, about private prayer is, does it help? Does it help pay attention to the world I'm in? And if it doesn't, mm -hmm. if it's a waste of time. But it does. And therefore, that's why I pray. That's interesting, the, the question of private prayer. Mm. I think the next line, forgive me if I'm wrong, is like, I was a lonely child. Yeah. There's loneliness in here, too. Mm. Uh, makes me think of Whitehead saying, religion's what one does with one's solitariness. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I liked that, because mm. religion's also about connection. But it there's is. something really truthful about this loneliness in, or aloneness. Yeah. Uh, what's that about in prayer, and how does it lead to maybe connection, or, or does it? I don't yeah. know, maybe it just is. Well, I think it's a necessary thing for being alive. Everybody will have to face their own loneliness at some point. Yeah. Um, I remember I was maybe 22, 23, and I was speaking with my friend Siobhan, who was, she has five brothers, farming family in South Armagh, and um, she doesn't have a lot of time for self-indulgence. <laughs> and I was 22, and um, I said something like, I'm still feeling lonely. Somehow, even the way I was thinking about loneliness I was implying that, you know, it was going to it was going to pass at some point, that 22 was too old to feel lonely. And um, Siobhan said, 
Loneliness is part of every adult life. And then she said, every mature adult life. Um, and it was such a helpful bridge into being an adult. You know, all of us have had these fantasies about what a real adult would be. And then you turn into <laughs> one and you're like, well, I don't know what that is. Um, uh, and Siobhan made a bridge for me to pass from a, an immature imagination about the absence of loneliness into a way within which to say it's going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the, the incapacity to be lonely with yourself is is a dangerous thing because without it you will probably have an addictive relationship to the question of power and mm. i've worked in conflict resolution for a long time and one of the things i found in people who were high conflict escalating people often creating conflict and exacerbating conflict was i thought what is your inner life what is your capacity to face yourself and i don't mean in that do you pray do you believe in a god are you a member of a congregation or denomination because there's plenty of people in those situations who are assholes as well and so uh, what what I really care about is do you face yourself and do you face that part of yourself that's unthreaded and that I think is the invitation because if you're facing that and I don't mean that in an abandoned sense just as part of the human condition mm-hmm. well then there might be the possibility that you um might be easier to be with when you're with people. <laughs> a bit easier. So that's the territory of prayer, maybe. That, if, that in, there's something interior, something in that loneliness might be where, well, it's where we'd in, explore. Yeah, it's an invitation. I mean, loneliness mm-hmm. is deadly, too. I don't in mm-hmm. any way mean to speak about loneliness right. as an art to say, oh, it's lovely, embrace it. Do you know, isolation is a terrible thing. People die of isolation. Right. So I'm not trying to say, sure, head off and be lonely. But it is to say we all will carry an existential loneliness with us and it is going. It, it calls for our attention. And then it also calls for us to reach out and be reached out to. So all of those things are necessary. It shouldn't be run into, but it also shouldn't be avoided. Yeah. yeah. Poetry, conflict and prayer are basically the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, and this for me is... I'm aware that I probably give frustrating answers to specific questions because I go in the wrong direction. But yeah, they are all the same things. It's about what words do we use to make meaning in a way where we can hopefully have something like peace with each other and self and art. These are not three things we would put together, right? Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, well, with language, if they all involve language. They um, do. This is a love of yours, so let's explore that and maybe explore that Part of your story is that you, I think your phrase was, I grew up with two tongues in my head. Yeah, in my mouth. So you have, you have, yeah. In your mouth, sorry. And you have two languages. Irish works only through you very differently from English, right? Yeah. You have 11 words for yeah. one word here. Yeah. Well, there is a kind of a, an idea in Irish that, you know, why say in five words what you could say in 50? You might as well. And that works when we speak English, too, as I'm evidencing, Scott, by giving long answers to short, elegant questions. <laughs> Um, my mother was sick when I was younger and so I was sent to be looked after a few hours a day by a woman from um, West Kerry if any of you have been to Ireland from the Dingle Peninsula in fact further out past Dingle Ballyferret or Ballyinertherig and she was living in Cork in Cork City and she had no English she only had some words Um, my, my dad said he heard her once try to say a sentence in English and she all she had was was um some vocabulary but no no grammar um and so 
from the age of two to about five, she minded me for two or three hours a day. I thought she was 200, you know. Um, she Apparently, she was not yet 60, but <laughs> I was small. And uh, she, of course, for those hours, all she spoke was Irish because that's all she could speak. So I arrived in school with a, a kind of a mother tongue, uh, or and a, mother tongues, I suppose you should say, and she was of the kind of child-minding mindset where, you know, it wasn't about entertaining me. It was about, you know, keeping out of the way. But she, ta she talked a lot. There was other children there too. So I must have picked up Irish and certain forms of dialect. I'm not fluent. It's important to say I would never imp imply that I am um, a native speaker from somebody who grew it, spoke it all the time growing up. But there is a, there is a, a relationship of mother tongue to it in me that means that I, I turn to it half the time without knowing why the words that I'm grasping for and they they land in me. So there is an intuitive experience of it with terrible grammar, I should say that. In fact, I possibly learned well from her how to speak a language with no grammar. <laughs> so, uh, so I do love Irish and I also feel like Irish loves me and that's the thing with language is it's bigger than the person mm -hmm. and it can shape you. So I love Etymology. I have a ma magnificent, massive dictionary of etymology at home. I love looking at the architecture and the history of a word, like looking up the word silly and realizing that once it was a compliment before it became what we now consider it to be a mild derogatory term. Or <laughs> looking up the word slew in English, S-L-E-W, it comes from Irish, slua, meaning crowd. Um, so those things enliven me, but also I think create a sense of meaning and working in conflict when somebody would say in the context of a conflict negotiation or in the context of some kind of dialogue between people who have been victims from different perspectives in the, con the British-Irish conflict in the north of Ireland. Do you know, um, when somebody says something like, the world changed after what happened that day in 1976, to just think of, my God, listen to that mythology, the world changed. It did. They're telling the truth and it's true. And to, to have within the mind a, a broad literary conversation with that, rather than to just think, oh, that's the voice of drama, to go, no, this is the voice of literature being birthed right in front of us. And what she is saying is as important as what a Greek myth says, is as important about what the Book of Genesis says in the beginning. She is creating a world based as to the perspective that she's putting forward. And that is of the quality of great literature. Um, terrible literature. I don't mean terrible in terms of bad. I mean terrible in the sense of I wish it weren't true, but it is. And to honour the literature of the everyday life, I think, is a call. And conflict, unfortunately, gives you opportunities everywhere to pay attention to the literature of everyday life when people have lived through bereavement and trauma that they never should have. Yeah, I think you said elsewhere conflict is information. Yeah. Uh, and that it, I would look at these three conflict prayer poetry and think... We have prayer and poetry that we hope will uh, resolve conflict in some way, yeah. right? These are the two good things. This is the problem. But it's information about what? what is well, first of all, not all conflict can be resolved and not all yeah. conflict is negative. I mean, violent conflict, yes, as we know, paying attention to the news, my God. Um, but conflict is also where art comes from. Conflict, like nobody has to teach a newborn to rage against the machine. Do you know, when they're hungry, they howl. When they want something, they howl. 
they also just howl sometimes because they want to howl. Um, <laughs> this isn't evidence of trauma, apart from the trauma of being alive. And in that there is the, you hear the primal echo of the desire to live and to say, I am alive. It's almost like a, a theater of vocalizing a sense to say, I'm here, like that first person who spat clay on their hand and stuck it on the wall. That too is a primal call to say, I am here, I am alive. And I think newborns are doing that. So therefore, I don't think all conflict is to be resolved. And therefore, it is fascinating information about what it means to be alive. And that, I think, is helpful. And when you see a conflict escalating between people, I think there is a hope that in the midst of trying to stop it escalating, that you can hear what's causing this to escalate is the information that a person is feeling undignified or shamed or humiliated in public, mm -hmm. is the information that they have been profoundly misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Does one person think we're arguing about what happened yesterday and the other person is saying, we're arguing about what's happened every day for 100 years or 300 years. So therefore, what's the information happening and how can you pay attention to the information? And that, I love doing literary analysis of a text, of a poem, but I also do, do love doing literary analysis live about what's happening when people are using words to speak about something that's utterly difficult. And both, I think, are doing the same thing with language. And if God, whatever that means, isn't present in those, well, then I'm uninterested in that God. I think God is made in the moment of the possibility of seeing that language can lead to meaning. It's interesting. I'm just that myth of the garden that we should get back to some place of some kind of innocence where there yeah. was no conflict. It seems like the book is telling us, well, that's on page three. We're gone. Yeah, We're done. Yeah. Margaret Atwood has an idea. Because, I mean, most mythology is you tell the past in order to make sense of the present. You find that throughout the Hebrew Bible, that there's a way of saying, this is how we got here. And the here is chaos and confusion. And so, therefore, a story of the past is told to make sense of, therefore, we're here. And this gives us a story to hold ourselves together. And Margaret Atwood somewhere, I can't remember where, suggested that perhaps... The, the story and the second story of creation, the one you find in Genesis 2 and 3, was based on maternal death and childbirth because that's one of the curses after the, the fruit and the expulsion from the garden. You'll work hard with the sweat of your brow and your labor will be increased in childbirth and your pain. And so was it so that people were trying to think, where did this start? What is this? And so therefore into the context of that, a story about a garden a serpent, a temptation, a time when it wasn't so hard, a time when labor, but whether that's work or whether that's the work of giving birth, um, uh, that both of those originally had something good in them, but the, the, the pain has increased. She was speculating, but I think one of the things she's doing is showing us the way we try to make meaning with the stories we do. And I think we do that all the time. You know, you try to... Mm -hmm create a container that's going to work. And the question is, is what's it trying to make work? Um, and that's truth then in that context. Not truth, and I, mean, the, I don't think the poets who wrote those texts were interested <clears throat> at all in what we were calling science, but they were interested in horticulture, in agriculture, in the human condition, in the question of what is the, what is the fruit of knowledge? Does knowledge help you live? Or is there something else we need to? Mm -hmm. They were interested in the human condition. They were magnificent architects of stories that explore that. 
Um, and I think Margaret Atwood elevates that narrative in the way that she proposes a possible analysis. Yeah, shame, estrangement, all the things we're dealing with yeah, are right exile. there. Yeah, totally. Have I answered any one of your questions Yes, yet? you have. Okay. Who cares? <laughs> if, I, if you haven't, I asked the wrong question. <laughs> but taking it into, uh, so there's this William Carlos Williams, this famous line of his, it's difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for, what's, for the lack of what's found there. Mm. Thinking of bringing this language into times of conflict. Just this Sunday, Ilya Kaminsky, a Ukrainian-American poet, whom I know you admire, as, as do I, wrote a, a piece in the New York Times about the war in his home country, and it ended, this is what Ilya's essay ended with, I ask how I can help. Finally, an older friend, a lifelong journalist, writes back, Putin's come and go. If you want to help, send us some poems and essays. We're putting together a literary magazine. In the middle of war, he's asking for poems. Mm. And he, we all, the New York Times also published Ilya's brilliant, we, we um, were happy. We lived happily, we during, lived happily the war. during the war. So it strikes me that prayer, if prayer matters to the world, if poetry matters to the world, it might not matter in the ways we think or wish it did. I wish prayer worked in a reliable way that solved the problem I pitched to God, <laughs> right? I wish poetry brought some beauty and peace and restoration to the... To con it doesn't seem like either of them work that way. So here we are in a world in which Russia's walking into Ukraine brutally, yeah. just brutalizing its people. How do prayer and poetry matter to this, to this world? Mm. Ilya thinks they do. Yeah. You do too, I think. I do. One of the things that we know in times of war is that war is often justified through language and terrible things are said in the context of this and poets are complicit in this. It's really important, I think, to not imagine that poets therefore are mm -hmm. these savers of language. The question is, is, is anybody using good enough language? And everybody can fail. For instance, Edmund Spencer, one of the finest poets, wrote The Fairy Queen. If you read his treatise against the Irish, you would want to burn all of his books. I mean, you shouldn't, because the fairy queen is brilliant. But reading what he said about the Irish and what he said about English people daring to learn the Irish tongue, um, is it's terrible to read. And you see him being caught up in a war machine, even, even while his imagination was also caught up in magnificent mythology and poetry. So none of this is to say that people who pray or people who write poetry are, are the ordained... Um, uh, messiahs and, and saviors of anything. It's, it's an invitation to everybody to pay attention to the quality of your language. Like, for instance, this is a terrible example, but if you were to have a child and say to that child, every day, I hate you, you would, there would be an impact in language on that child. Of course there would. Language creates something or destroys it. And when you have a situation where somebody in public office is demeaning language to such an extent that violence is justified, violence will always follow. It's, it's, an, it's, it's a diabolical equation to create the imaginative, um, literary ground for violence will mean that violence will follow. Um, yeah. We are, we are narrative-driven people and create the narrative and the imagination. It will unfold itself in the world. And religion also has been horrifically complicit in that. And so, therefore, the question for me in times of, of strife is where is creative language being used? Where is language that's, that's 
unfolding a possibility. Um, the Good Friday Agreement that was signed in 1998, that was an extraordinary culmination of, of British presence in Ireland finally paying attention to the impact of all of that. Um, the, the preamble, the opening text says about the Good Friday Agreement that we approach this in a spirit of concord. Concord, coming from cœur, French, a spirit of shared heart. What an extraordinary thing to have a document, a legal document, an internationally binding peace treaty that uses words like spirit of concord. And right the way through Brexit, I've been thinking, give me language like the spirit of concord. That's what we want, rather than a false imagination of the past that Britain was putting forward, or some people in Britain were putting forward, selling a lie to people who would have been poor during the glorious empire that they were saying we're going to get back. And that's the terrible thing. It created a past that never existed in order to justify a future that would continue to fail the people who they were saying it would, it would benefit. And you see that happening over and over again. And that is the failure of public language, inventing a past that didn't exist in order to sell a lie, rather than speaking about a mythology of the past in order to make serious sense of the present and be open to the hunger between us and use that hunger not to, not to satisfy kind of existential yearning, but to bring us together, because that's the only way that language will work, is to bring us together. And we are all culprits of, of failing language, and we are all artists at the possibility of using creative language. And for me, it's an urgent matter of life and death. I've had this question that I didn't know you're the one I needed to ask it of, but of course you're the one I needed to ask it of. There's a sense in America right now, I have a sense that I'm struggling with, that our First Amendment if it's not broken, there was some container for it that's broken hmm. within its boundaries that it could function in a way that there was trust and language could work. Yeah. I wonder if looking, what you're describing is a lot of responsibility with language. We're not accustomed to talking about responsibility with language. We're talking about, I can say whatever I please. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a stance. And I, I appreciate the, the importance of the First Amendment protecting minority speech and all of these things. And we need to say, yeah. but. And journalism. Yeah. How do we talk about that, especially in a culture who's been trained since the time of that baby was being talked about? You're, yeah. You should be free to say what you want until the theater's on fire, whatever the metaphor is. Yeah. That you can't yell fire in a theater. That doesn't seem to be working well for us no. right now. No, it's not. And. I think of conflict like a theatre. If you're looking at what's happening on a theatre, you're usually being engaged with what's on the stage, okay? With the story that's being unfolded on the stage. And often the setting is interesting and the characters are even more interesting. But on the, in the theatre of conflict, um, the plot is really predictable. It's death, winning, victory mm -hmm. over somebody else. And... In order for any of us, I think, to be conscious about what's happening on that stage, you have to ask, who's paid for this damn stage? Who's <laughs> directing it? Who wrote the script? Who is being entertained? And how am I being fooled into thinking that this is what's real? And within the context of that, what, what has often been justified in the name of freedom of speech is actually the exact opposite. It's somebody going, if we can get people to believe that, Look at what we can do. Look at how much money we can make. If we can get people to believe that Facebook is about friendship, look at how much money we can, we can make on the basis of exploiting people's capacity, deep, innate, torturous capacity to compare our lifestyles with each other. 
Look at how much we can sell advertising. Who cares about advertising during the Super Bowl? People will spend time coming to adverts that are going to be coming to them. They'll bring adverts uh, while they're looking, while they're on the bus or whatever. And to look at all of these things in the stage of manipulation that's happening, I think makes you realize that what's being passed off as freedom, I wish mm -hmm. people believed in freedom of speech, mm -hmm. but that is not it, what we speak about passing forward. Freedom of speech is not saying whatever the hell you want. Freedom of speech is something that is of the possibility of protecting language and people rather than being manipulated by people that go, we can make money over this, we can kill people by this, we can create a situation where people will choose to be complicit in violence. That is not freedom of speech. There's no amendment for that, and there shouldn't be. Yeah. One of your uh, gifts that I'm guessing a lot of people in this room know you through is, is uh, unfolding a poem at a time on your podcast. <laughs> And keeping all of this in mind, like keeping all in this conversation so far, what does it mean to speak truthfully and faithfully to one another? And take us through. To do a live this poetry chain. unbound. Let's do a little live poetry. Is that, are you all game for that? Yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, this is good. <laughs> well, this is good. Uh, I should say, Poetry Unbound happened because Krista Tippett. I, I love poetry, and Krista had, uh, has an extraordinary capacity to say, we can. We can create community and respond to the desire for community by gathering around words, words that matter. And so she created the platform and then invited me to be to a voice within that platform, which has been an extraordinary honor. Um, and so uh, I think it's important to, uh, to honor her, her idea and her continuing support and shaping about why is it that we look at this? These aren't, I love literary experiences. I love literary criticism. But Poetry Unbound, I think our hope is, is that, the, that we might all pay attention to our lives in partnership with a poem. It occurred to me that I think I learned poetry in an extractive economy. Mm. It's this vessel that I'm going to go in and extract as much meaning or as much metaphor, whatever it is. And that was my view. And your approach, as we'll see here, is nothing like that. <laughs> it's nothing like we've exhausted the, the poem. It's, it's very much that we've, we've you know, you've, brought it to life. Anyway, let's, let's do it and I'll stop talking about it. And so here's a poem called um, Concerning That Prayer I Cannot Make. And it's by the American poet Jane Mead, whose work I adore. And this is the first poem of her first book. Um, her first book was called The Lord and the General Din of the World. <laughs> what a title. So, Concerning That Prayer I Cannot Make. Jesus, I am cruelly lonely, and I do not know what I have done, nor do I suspect that you will answer me. And what is more, I have spent these bare months bargaining with my soul as if I could make her promise to love me, when now it seems that what I meant when I said soul was that the river reflects the railway bridge, just as the sky says it should. It speaks that language. I do not know who you are. I come here every day to be beside this bridge, to sit beside this river, so I must have seen the way the clouds just slide under the rusty arch without snagging on the bolts, how they are borne along on the dark water. I must have noticed their fluent speed and also how that tattered blue t-shirt remains snagged on the crown of the mostly sunk dead tree, despite the current's constant pulling. Yes. 
Somewhere in my mind, there must be the image of a sky blue t-shirt caught and the white islands of ice flying by and the light clouds flying slowly under the bridge, though today the river's fully melted. I must have seen, but I did not see. I am not equal to my longing. Somewhere there should be a place, the exact shape of my emptiness. There should be a place responsible for taking one back. The river, of course, has no mercy. It just lifts the dead fish toward the sea. Of course, of course, what I meant when I said soul was that there should be a place. On the far bank, the warehouse lights blink red, then green, and all the yellow machines with their rusted scoops and lifts sit under a thin layer of sunny frost. And look, my own palm, there slowly rocking. It is my pale palm, palm where a black pebble is turning and turning. Listen, all you bare trees, burrs, brambles, piles of twigs, red and green lights flashing, muddy bottle shards, shoe half buried. Listen, listen, I am holy. I, I adore this poem. Um, I feel like I feel like this poem is a person who has been on the edge of death and has come back to life and is now facing a crisis even worse than the crisis of should I die? It's the question of how do I live? And she is walking and it feels like an industrial Eden. Do you know, mm -hmm. it feels like if the Garden of Eden was there, when they left the gates, suddenly they're in a warehouse area. There's red and green lights. There's a, a muddy shoe. There's that T-shirt. There's the half, the mostly sunk dead tree. And she's been coming there and she's saying, have I seen this? What's been going on? I've been in the world inside myself. I haven't been looking around. And she is speaking to Jesus. Jesus, I'm cruelly lonely and I do not know what I've done. And then she says, I do not know who you are. Who's she speaking to? To Jesus? Yeah. To herself? Yeah. To us as the readers? Yeah. <laughs> are we all echoed in that? I don't know who you are. And what's amazing is that the opening, you know, is about the past, present, and future, or the, or the present, the past, and the future. I'm cruelly lonely. I don't know what I've done, and I don't know if you'll answer me. You know, it's this time warp that she's caught up in, you know. Um, and then by the end, she's just looking at this, uh, a pebble in her hand, and then looking at all around, trees, burrs, brambles, pile of twigs, red and green lights flashing, muddy bottle shard, shoe half buried. Listen, listen, I am holy. She becomes the answer to the existential question that she's been asking. And in the face of Jesus and God and meaning and life, somehow what she's saying is, I need to find a language for who I am. And I need to find a way to live. And living will, be, will mean having my eyes open and finding beauty. You know, I love this part, you know, um, all the yellow machines with their rusted scoops and lifts sit under a thin layer of sunny frost. This isn't the Alps in, in Switzerland, you know, but it is saying, but what's there? What happens when you see, when you pay attention, when you begin to notice? I'm living in New York City at the moment 
and um, there are not many birds around. <laughs> and every time a little bird lands on the windowsill, I put everything down and say, hello. Um, uh, and there's normally a siren and people shouting and cars honking. But it's a way of thinking, it's not about going to beautiful places, it's about beauty being in the eye and therefore letting that guide you. And this, I think, seems to be a way that she's offering to us in the midst of the, what we think the crises are, should I live or should I die? She's saying the crisis is how to live right where you are, to pay attention to simply what you see, the industry of it, the waste of it, the potential of it, the beauty of it. Um, I feel like she's the voice of God or a new Eve saying, here is Eden, here is the world we're in. Look, and in that, find a reassurance of your own sense of self. I am holy. Oh, it's lovely the way she takes that question. And maybe this is one way that poetry and prayer doesn't take us to the place we thought we were going. <laughs> yeah. She says, what's a soul? And she said, maybe a soul means there's a place for us. And then she says, I'm holy. Yeah. She hasn't resolved these things along the way, but arrives yeah. at this place. Yeah. yeah, and she starts by saying, maybe a soul means that there's a place for us. And then she modifies that even more and says, what I meant when, when I said soul was that there should be a place. Yeah. Not even a place for us, just a place. Where are you? What's happening? What's it like to sit in the chair you're sitting in? What are you feeling? What's happening this evening? What do you see? That that can be the observational experience can be a conversation with what it means to be alive. And to be alert to that is a, a, a creative act and a profound act. And it's a powerful act of creativity rather than a, a, a forcing of power and dominance elsewhere. I have read this poem hundreds of times oh, since I came across it. And I, I still am moved every time I read it um, by what she does in it. And the whole book is brilliant. It's in line. I heard your sermon today. Quick. Oh, yeah. Drop that in here to go back to listen to Patrick's sermon from today. But you were very done. much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But you talked a lot about Patrick and an embodied spirituality and not an, a spirituality that's off into no. the abstract. Mm. And uh, this is a poem of that, of yeah. that spirituality, isn't it? Including yeah. rusty things, not yeah. just meadows and yeah. Yeah. rabbits and birds. Yeah. I mean, I, I've stepped out of the, the room where I care about whether there's a God or not. Um, in terms of proof or belief, you know, I'm utterly uninterested in recruiting anybody to that. I'm interested in the question of God, absolutely. And I'm really interested on one of the things that means for me, one of the theological propositions that I think is extraordinary about many religions and the way that it occurs in Christianity is this idea of incarnation, carne meaning meat. So the idea that somehow there was the belief that God was so curious about human experience that God became meat among us. And in the context of that, there is a dignity to every enfleshed experience then. What did that mean that that was of curiosity to God? There's this idea that there's only two stories. A person goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And I think the incarnation is trying to do both of those at once that God became the person on a journey of learning what it meant to have fingernails or hair or, or the need for sleep or emotion or to be in time. And then also God was the stranger coming to town. And if that is in any way enlightening to the imagination, it must alert us to the potential, therefore, that everybody is both of those things, the person on the journey and the stranger in town. And that occurs 
most profoundly and should occur most profoundly in our intimate places as well as in the places of politics, whether that's across a political aisle or across a, a, a red line of war. Yeah. I want you to talk about maybe a little bit how you pray mm -hmm. and maybe the, the question of forms. Oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. You know, when I, the workshop I attended with you, you had us re, uh, write collects. Yeah. Those in, in liturgical traditions will see printed, here's the collect of the day, it looks like collect. But there's a form embedded in that that we might not even uh, know, recognize until somebody's laid it up. Talk yeah. about forms and prayer and practice and how that matters to you. It's a broader poetic conversation as well as a theological one. You get these trends in global movements of poetry where some people say we're beyond form and other people say we're formalists. You know, are you writing a sonnet? Are you writing a villanelle? Are you sticking to strict rhyming structures or strict syllabic structures? Greek poetry had very strict syllabic structures. Um, there's an Irish mode in poetry. There's all these different forms around the world. Music, poetry is a certain form of music. And so ultimately you're looking for a way within which the, the, the inherent music of language can be held in a poem. And knowing that that isn't just an exercise in cleverness or having, you know, having a good mind about words. It's somehow a container for meaning. I, know I always misquote this, but Marie Howe has a poem, where she, The Meadow, where she finishes off by something like, even now the words lie dormant on your tongue and you must know that tangled among them and terribly new is the sentence that will change your life. <laughs> Extraordinary line. Tangled among them and terribly new. Tuh, tuh. That's form. It's not formal alliteration because they're not quite by each other, but it creates a certain percussion that holds it together. And that's doing more work than cleverness is it's helping, it's a mnemonic, it's helping us remember and therefore helping that language sit into your life. Mm. And this is a live question in poetry. You know, I heard somebody who was an editor of a poetry journal say, I will never publish anybody who's ever written anything formal. And you'd get the same thing in the opposite way from somebody saying, I'll never publish anybody who writes free verse, how dare they? Um, both of those, I think, in my own arrogance, I, I think to, to say anything like that, that you wouldn't, that you would discount something is, is to miss the possibility of brilliance. So, and in the context of this, I want to place prayer um, because the prayers that I think are so beautiful are often following an inherent form. Um, even people who like expository prayer start off with a certain kind of form, dear God, or we ask this in the name of Jesus, or whatever you, you know, people have different forms um, like that. Lord hear us, Lord graciously hear us. You know, these are forms. And collect is an ancient form, well, ancient, a thousand years old at least. And it's in the Episcopal church, churches around the world where you particularly see this form being amplified, although you get it in Catholic churches too, and Methodist and other liturgical churches, the Lutherans where a collect has five very, very distinct parts. You name the one you're praying to, you say something about the one you're praying to, you name one desire, you say something about your desire, and then you finish with a bird of praise, amen, or something like that. And when you read any formal collect in the Book of Common Prayer, you'll see, oh my God, like 95% of them do the following. So Almighty God, fold one, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's <laughs> saying a little thing about the one you're praying to. Um, cleanse the thoughts of mine heart by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. That's fold three, naming one desire. That we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Fold four, giving a reason for why you're asking. And then fold five, 
um, in the name of Christ our Lord, amen. So this five-fold form, and one of the interesting things that that does is it unfolds a conversation. You name someone, you say something about them that indicates a relationship with them. You name one desire that makes, you, that, makes that implies, I've been thinking about what I want and I want to ask this. And then you say, why? And then you, even though your desire hasn't been fulfilled yet, you recognize the ambivalence sometimes of desire. And so you begin to practice something in the here and now, a moment of gratitude, a bird of praise, and amen. And that, I think, is a way to hold life together. I believe in God, I believe in prayer much more than I believe in God. Because uh, I think that prayer, I don't know if it works, but certainly it allows us to hear an echo of our hunger. And sometimes that's enough. I wish there was more. <laughs> Maybe there is. I can't prove that. But I do know that what we can say is that some form, some approach towards something, some practice where you say, even to this empty room of God, I've come here every day for 50 years to go, well, what a powerful room. What a room you've made. What a sacred emptiness you've gathered around. And that might be something called God in that event. And what, there can be something created in that moment. And therefore, in the midst of being, knowing that for me, the imagination flourishes and the theological enterprise flourishes where certitudes to say, this is the way to get into heaven. This is the right religion. This is the wrong religion. Uh, we've all seen too much violence in order to be satisfied with that kind of failure of language. But I think the worry is, is to throw out, therefore, the enterprise of prayer in the name of recognizing how, those, how that failure of language has failed. Um, the enterprise of prayer is much more interesting and, mm -hmm. and serves us. I wouldn't say it works because we're often surprised by where, where our prayer leads us because it leads us away from the question of necessarily response or answer. But somehow it leads us in a little bit like Jane Mead's poem does into this place where, space where we explore our hunger and create a relationship with the emptiness. And that can be surprising because sometimes it speaks back. You have a Nietzsche quote, I know, which I, I loved when you sent it to me. What is it? Uh, it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. So that's oh, the beautiful. Like, yeah. Over time, yeah. rather than prayer in a moment, yeah. producing some magic, this long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. I was caught up in the charismatic renewal. I always call it the charismatic revolution, which gives it the wrong impression. <laughs> um, I was caught up in the charismatic renewal for a long time. And I felt terrible most days. Pray, 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 pray. I was like, what? I found it so confusing. And then I landed on the Stations of the Cross, you know, 14 images, which is really a chapter-making experience of image from the time of the condemnation of Jesus of Nazareth to death to the time that his corpse was laid in the tomb. And it's an imaginative project. He falls three times in there. That's not directly narrated in the text, but it's beautifully imagined in these extraordinary forms. And I did those every day for 10 years, and that was a form. The rosary is a form, the angelus is a form, even song is a form, um, yoga is a form, um, walking the dog and looking at the hill is a form. Any of these things, if we, if we do them regularly enough and know that this is a repository of placemaking that I can come back to, therefore you realize that a container can gather a life. And the question isn't, are you using the right container or the wrong one? The question is, is, is the container working? And therefore, there is a place for your loneliness, a place for your yearning, a place for your desire, 
a place hopefully for your accountability and responsibility and reflection and confession and all of these things that we know are part of an adult life that is taking responsibility and creativity. Prayer, I think, is a great container. Hmm. Would you close with one of the, <laughs> one of the things, one of the two suggestions yeah. I had that you yeah, might read yeah. of your own words sure. about the practice of prayer? Another form of prayer that I like is simply saying hello, paying attention. In, in the final, or not the final, the second to last chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus of Nazareth arrives in the room where his friends are locked. He's dead. He's alive. They, they see somebody who is not frightened, even though they are. They're in the room frightened because of the Jews, and they're all Jews. And so <laughs> there's this uh, complicated politic emerging, too. Um, and he says to them, peace be with you, which sounds very noble and complicated and, you know, a little bit like peace be with you. But that's just shalom, which is also just hello. Um, and many languages have a way within which a greeting is, is a blessing, you know. Um, in Irish, you say, which means God be with you. And the answer to that is God and Mary be with you. And if you start off by saying God and Mary be with you, the answer to that is God, Mary and St. Patrick be with you. <laughs> Just going to one up you. Um, we stop after three. But I do like imagining an alternative universe where the, the greeting has become longer and longer when you name 50 saints, you know. Uh, so, and including poets in that. Um, so... So the question of greeting linguistically really interests me. This book was written under the title Hello. That was going to be the title of it. Um, but then we changed it after it was written to In the Shelter. So here's the last paragraph of the book. Neither I nor the poets I love have found the keys to the kingdom of prayer. And we cannot force God to stumble over us where we sit. But I know that it's a good idea to sit anyway. So every morning I kneel, waiting, making friends with the habit of listening, hoping that I'm being listened to. There I greet God and my own disorder. I say hello to chaos, my unmade decisions, my unmade bed, my desire and my trouble. I say hello to distraction and privilege. I greet the day and I greet my beloved and bewildering Jesus. I recognize and greet my burdens, my luck, my controlled and uncontrollable story. I greet my untold story, my unfolding story, my unloved body, my own body. I greet the things I think will happen and I say hello to everything I do not know about the day. I greet my own small world and I hope that I can meet the bigger world that day. I greet my story and hope that I can forget my story during the day and hope that I can hear some stories and greet some surprising stories during the long day ahead. I greet God and I greet the God who is more God than the God I greet. Hello to you all, I say, as the sun rises above the chimneys of North Belfast. Hello. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 99-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and onto our podcast now beyond. Dialogue's produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten preaching series coordinator, and Sam Bryant, our sound engineer. And thanks to you for listening. 
If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them. And that God calls us out of our estrangements and conflicts into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you all.